to use to detect and attack enemy bombers. When we ran against our own B-52s in exercises, they used electronic countermeasures to try to stop me. I learned to use electronic counter countermeasures to get around their jamming and complete the attack anyway. As something of an amateur historian, I also learned the history of electronic warfare. And I later taught electronic warfare at the Electronic Warfare Program Office in Dayton, Ohio. More recently, I made a PowerPoint presentation to show to people in our local area. I have used that PowerPoint presentation to make this presentation to you, which I hope you will find interesting and informative. In 1904, after the historic Japanese victory over the Russians in the Battle of Tsushima Straits, the remnants of the Russian fleet fled to Port Arthur on the coast of China. The big Japanese battleships stayed out of the range of the Russian defensive guns, and the Japanese sent in small, fast, hard-to-hit ships to cruise around the entrance and call the fall the shots and correct the aim of the big battleships standing farther out. A Russian telegraph operator heard the messages and began adding his own dots and dashes in the middle of the Japanese signals scrambling the data that the Japanese were trying to send to the battleships. This was the first recorded use of electronic countermeasures in warfare. In World War I, the British listened to the German signals and tried to send false messages using the German call signs. We're not sure how effective this was. In early World War II, the Germans were bombing England at night and in bad weather. A young British physicist, Reginald V. Jones, guessed that the Germans were using radio beams to navigate across England. He wrote a letter to Winston Churchill, who acted upon his recommendation and started what became known as the Battle of the Beams, or as Churchill called it, the Wizard War. Jones became known as the father of electronic warfare and was awarded the Order of the British Empire. I was honored to be his personal escort when he came to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1978 to give a presentation. Jones and I had a long private luncheon together at the officers club at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and he told me what he had done. He originally been asked by the Royal Air Force to explore the possibilities of using infrared to detect another aircraft in flight. He and a colleague hand-built an infrared detector and carried it up in one airplane and were able to detect another airplane in flight. And that was in 1934. I didn't know anyone did anything that well with infrared in 1934. When the Germans began bombing England at night and in weather, 
Jones wondered how they navigated across England so accurately. He saw a tourist picture of a strange antenna on top of a German building and guessed that they might be using radio beams to navigate across England. He drove around England in his car with a radio receiver, but was unable to detect any such beams. He decided that it must be that due to the curvature of the Earth, the beams would be only detectable at altitude. The Royal Air Force wouldn't listen to Jones's ideas, so he wrote a letter to the Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill, explaining that due to the curvature of the Earth, the signals could only be detected at altitude and probably only during a German bombing raid at night. The Royal Air Force told Churchill that they didn't have any flights to spend on such ridiculous ideas, but Churchill ordered them to give him one two-seat Spitfire for a night mission to check out his ideas. Jones gave the rear seat pilot a radio receiver and asked them to fly into the German bomber stream and search for the radio beams. They found the beams just as Jones had predicted. This was the first electronic reconnaissance mission in history, and it started the Battle of the Beams. Jones knew that the Germans were working on the Lorentz system, which was a way to provide a beam for pilots to find their way to airports. The antenna that he had seen on top of a German building in a tourist photo looked like an enlarged version of the Lorentz system, but it was aimed at England. What if the beam was aimed at England and a second beam came across and told the point that they were over the target? Due to the curvature of the Earth, the beams could not be detected on the ground in England. On one side of the beam would be just dots, dit, 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 dit. And on the other side of the beam would be just dashes, da, 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 da. If you got exactly on the path between the two, the dots of the dashes would work together to a steady tone. Then you were on the beam. A second beam would be set up to cross the first beam over the target. The pilot would fly out on the beam, following the beam outbound, and the bombardier would be listening on a different radio to the second beam. And when he got the on-beam signal, he was over the target, he would drop the bombs. The British set up their own transmitter on the German frequency. It broadcast a steady tone, but at low power. They would turn it on as the German bombers approached. If they were on the German pilot's frequency, it would tend to bend the beam left or right. If it was on the bombardier's frequency, it would make him drop the bombs short. Half the bombs the Germans dropped against London ended in the water. Many cities were spared as the bombs dropped against the cities exploded in the farmland. It would have been awfully hard 
for Churchill to explain to the farmers while they were being bombed to spare the cities. So he kept the whole program very secret. This was just the beginning of the Battle of the Beams. The Germans came up with new systems and the British came up with new counters. But the era of electronic warfare had begun. You have seen this electromagnetic spectrum before, and you may think it's old hat, that it has nothing to offer. But truly understanding it and the implications of this chart will help you to understand infrared, radar, and lasers. This chart is set up with short wavelengths on the left and long wavelengths on the right. You know that high frequencies mean short wavelengths and low frequencies mean long wavelengths. But do you realize that the wavelength determines the size of the antenna and what you can do with that frequency? Long wavelengths and low frequencies on the right have great range but low resolution. High frequencies and short wavelengths on the left have very high resolution, but they don't go very far. At any frequency, resolution, the clarity of the picture, is a function of the size of the antenna. A low frequency radar requires an antenna the size of a small house, but can see a very long ways and can see through the clouds, but has poor resolution. A high frequency radar needs a small antenna, but it can't see through moisture, can't see through clouds. The human eyeball is an excellent example of a high frequency receiver. It has a small antenna, the lens of your eye, and has very high resolution. If you look up at the sky, you can see billions of miles at stars, but that's looking through space. If you look through the atmosphere, you can't see very far. A low frequency radar, though, with a much larger antenna, can see a long ways through the atmosphere. Now let's apply that to weapons. A long range search radar requires a large antenna that can see a long ways, but it has poor resolution, a poor picture. A missile, on the other hand, has only room for a small antenna, so it must use a high frequency which will not be able to see very far, but it has a good resolution to see the target. A long range radar requires a large antenna and has such poor resolution that it is unsuitable for guiding missiles to their target. A low frequency radar may be able to detect a stealth fighter but it can't guide missiles to the target. A long range radar may be able to see you, but it can't kill you. A stealth airplane 
can fly through enemy airspace, and the enemy might know it's there, but they can't kill it. Air-to-air missiles are limited by the size of their antennas, and therefore they must be at high frequencies. A stealth aircraft is designed to be mostly invisible at the frequencies of aircraft attack radars and actually invisible in the missile frequencies that are needed to kill it. There are efforts to put low-frequency radars onto fighters so they can detect stealth aircraft, but these efforts are limited by the size of the antenna that you can put on a fighter. Again, the frequency determines the size of the antenna. At high frequencies, absorption becomes a problem. For example, a water droplet could be the same size as the wavelength of the radar, in which case it will absorb the radar. At even higher frequencies, the water molecule becomes the same size as the wavelength and absorbs the radar. Other molecules in the atmosphere, such as carbon dioxide, have the same effect. This creates windows where you can see through with your radar and places where it's blank and you cannot see through with your radar. High frequencies have excellent resolution. They're almost photographic quality, but because of all the minerals in the atmosphere, they can't go very far. Absorption can be an advantage. For instance, a helicopter flying down low wants a radar that can see trees and telephone lines, but it doesn't want its radar to be detected by enemy radar detectors. So it uses a very high frequency. Several new developments, such as synthetic aperture radars, phased array radars, and spread spectrum radars are beyond the scope of this presentation. How does electronic warfare work? I'll cover electronic countermeasures, chaff and flares, barrage jamming, sweep deception jamming, and angle deception jamming, and then I'll cover electronic counter-countermeasures, because for every countermeasure, there is a counter-countermeasure. This is a never-ending contest. This B-52 is dropping high drag bombs and flares at the same time. He apparently is flying low, and he's afraid that enemy soldiers might have infrared missiles to fire at him. So he's dropping the flares to decoy the missiles away. Chaff behaves similar to these flares, but in the radar spectrum. Chaff is metal-coated fiberglass pins cut to the frequency of the radar they want to jam. Chaff is carried in little cardboard boxes called bundles. Chaff and flares have no effective mass, so they stop almost immediately when they're dropped from the airplane. So they are almost always behind the target, and then they drop below the target. The electronic counter-countermeasures to chaff and flares 
are rather obvious. You can see that the target is on the left side of the picture and the chaff and flares are on the right side of the picture. So the pilot has a little switch in his cockpit that he knows the geometry of the attack and he says, take the left side of the picture, switches his switch over there and that's where the radar tracks. If you're behind the target, the target will be in front of the chaff and flares. So you set your radar to attack the front of the stream. For every counter countermeasure, there is a counter counter countermeasure. The bomber can fire rockets containing flares and chaff ahead of him or use powered decoys to fly along with him. Chaff, flares, and decoys are bulky and expensive. Let's see if we can do the same thing with electrons instead. If you know the attacker's frequency, you can have a jammer and just put out a lot of noise on that frequency and turn the scope white. Trouble is, as soon as you do that, your own jamming means that you can't see his signal anymore. Now he can just change a frequency and you're jamming happily on one frequency while he's tracking you on another. You stop your jamming, search for him, then tune your jammer to his frequency and start jamming and immediately he changes to another frequency. It's easier to just take your jammer and sweep through the various frequencies that he is capable of transmitting on, hoping that you'll break his lock or defeat a missile that might be on the way. The counter countermeasure that the F-106 had was to look at the target's jamming signals and pick a frequency that he isn't jamming. And then we would tune so fast that we could transmit on a frequency that he's not on and move off of it before he comes back to jam you. If you are in an old airplane, like the F-102 without sophisticated electronic counter countermeasures, and you're running against something like a B-52 that has good stuff, he can turn your scope white. Well, so what if he does? You just select home on jam. This guy is now transmitting so much energy that he is a beacon in the sky and your radar system can just home in on his jamming, and so can your missiles. The fighter pilot is sitting behind a very large, powerful radar. And as you get closer to the target, the reflected signal is increasing rapidly. And some point, reflect will overcome his jamming, and you'll be the radar, you can remember that his jammer is probably located on the belly of his airplane. So you can move up a little bit so that the body of his airplane blocks the jamming signal and you have less jamming to burn through. As you move in close, the bomber will deploy his last defenses, his tail guns, or in the most modern planes, he might have a laser back there to blind you as you're looking at it. While a large bomber like the B-52 has plenty of power to do barrage and sweep jamming, a small fighter does not. How about something that can be carried by a small fighter? Deception jamming requires advanced computers, but not so much electrical power.
We'll talk about range deception jamming first. The attacking radar sends out a pulse and has to wait until the pulse goes all the way out to its maximum range. The attacking radar can't have two pulses out at the same time or it will get confused as to which return is the real target. The time between pulses is called the pulse repetition frequency. A long PRF means that the target is looking a long distance. A short PRF means that he is looking at something much closer. If you're listening to his radar pulses coming in and he shifts from a long PRF to a short PRF, it means he has found you and he's probably tracking you. As a countermeasure, the fighter has something called a traveling wave tube, which collects the incoming signal, amplifies it, and transmits it right back to the original radar. If the traveling wave tube transmits it back with zero delay, it just amplifies the natural skin reflection of the fighter and makes the fighter appear much bigger on the enemy's radar. The attacking radar has automatic gain control, which turns down its receiver's gain until the attacking fighter now shows up at the right size. But because what it's looking at is the false signal put out by the traveling wave tube, the attacking radar is now looking at the false signal and not the real fighter. If the attacker's PRF, pulse repetition frequency, is known, the fighter's traveling wave tube can send out another fake pulse just before the attacker's second pulse arrives. The victim radar now sees a false target that's bigger and closer than the original target, and it turns down its IF gain to focus on the false target and can actually completely lose sight of the real target. The victim radar now sees only the false target and is close. The victim starts shooting his guns or firing his missiles at a false target that is really not there. Of course, there is a counter-countermeasure to this. The victim radar merely changes his pulse repetition rate randomly, and the fighter can no longer predict when the next pulse is going to arrive. In this case, he can only send in pulses that are delayed, and the false target will be farther away in distance than the real target. I once run, ran my F-106 against a supersonic B-58. He had a traveling wave tube, and I had random PRF. When I tried to lock on, the B-58 created false targets. Because of my random PRF, the false targets were always farther out in range. But my radar liked those false targets and would follow the false And he'd steal my range gate again, and I'd be chasing a false target. 
I'd break lock, relock, and he'd steal it again. I went supersonic to try the supersonic too, and he kept accelerating to stay out of range. That B-58 with his range deception jamming was the only bomber that ever got away from me and my F-106. Let's suppose that I lock on and get in close and fire my radar and infrared missiles. He immediately deploys flares to sucker off my infrared missiles, but the radar missiles are still coming in on him. The radar missiles are small and therefore have small antennas and operate at a high frequency. My missiles are semi-active missiles. That is, they home in on the reflected energy from my fighter's radar bouncing off the target's fuselage. To track, my missiles use nutation, which is off-centered spinning, something like a hula hoop. In this example, the missile is receiving a bigger signal to the right where the target is. That bigger signal is then fed back into the tracker, which turns the missile seeker to put the target in the center of the scan. Turning the missile seeker then turns the missile to put the target in the center of the scan, and it homes right in on the target for a kill. Of course, there is a counter-countermeasure to this. If the target knows my nutation rate, it can send out a pulse of jamming in synchronized the nutation rate. The missile accepts that as a target and turns to the wrong direction and goes zooming off into space. If the enemy was foolish enough to try barrage jamming against my missiles, my missiles would simply home in on his jammer and kill him anyway. If a bomber was able to defeat all our missiles, and this was nuclear war, we had a silver bullet. In nuclear war, we considered ourselves expendable. I would accelerate to supersonic speed and ram him. He would not get through. In the Yom Kippur War, between Israel and Egypt in 1973, the Egyptians crossed the Suez Canal and promptly moved in surface-to-air missiles. This was a new type of missile that they had got from the Russians. The Israeli fighters attacked with a usual complete disregard for their own safety, and the Russian missiles shot them out of the sky in large numbers. Welcome. This service is provided by freeconferencecall.com. There are 28 participants in the conference. Saw there was a signal that we Please had not announce seen yourself. Before. You we recorded the signal and sent it back to the Air Force at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Our intelligence experts quickly saw that the signal was easy to jam. We made a quick correction to our computer program and sent it back to Israel. I heard that our fix was 100% effective and that no more Israeli planes armed with our ECM were shot down by this missile. In summary, every countermeasure has a countermeasure to it. These are very expensive, both in money and in power. You know, the B-52 with eight engines 
as big generators, but small planes don't. ECM is very expensive and can cost as much as a helicopter, so helicopters don't normally carry ECM. Chaff and flares are like the old bayonet. They're simple, old, but they work. Stealth is a kind of ECM. To get around it, you use long wavelength radars. But long wavelength radars are not good for targeting. The enemy may be able to detect the stealth airplane, but he can't shoot it down. As we go into space, there is no atmosphere, so we are not restricted by the limitations of absorption lines and all that. We can therefore use very high frequency radars and lasers in space.